Well, we do find ourselves in Romans chapter 8, and we're looking at Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30 this morning. So go ahead and open up your copy of God's Word, and you can find your uh, copy, a copy of God's Word in the pews in front of you if you didn't bring your own Bible. And we ask that you would follow along with us as we read uh, together. We're going to look starting at Romans 8, 28, and go all the way reading through verse 32, though we will focus our attention on those middle two verses. So let us read together Romans 8, 28 through 32. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Well, the story of my eldest daughter's birth can be described as an inevitable chain of events that led to the Moors cleaning up vomit on the side of the highway. Let me explain. First, God designed my wife's body to have very quick deliveries. Unbeknownst to her, without being in active labor, her body was getting ready to give birth. And so as soon as she started active labor and woke me up in the wee hours of the morning, it was inevitable that this little girl was coming in less than an hour, two weeks early, at home, on the bathroom floor. You want the details? You can talk to her. When it became obvious that things were moving along, I gave Pastor Michael a call to ask if he could come get Eli so that we could go to the hospital, not knowing that things were going to happen quicker. Before he arrived, I had already delivered Abigail. I had already called 911 and was heading downstairs to let the paramedics in, and there comes Michael at the same time. And in the flurry of events, we didn't have time to give any of the typical instructions that you give to someone who's about to take your toddler. Well, after snapping a shot or two with Eli and baby Abigail, I whisked Eli off with the Moors. And later that morning, Eli got to eat one of his favorite breakfasts, which at the time was oatmeal. And he packed it away as he normally did at that age. But what we hadn't had the time to tell the Moors was that toddler Eli got extremely car sick on long car rides. And what always seemed to make the matter worse was if he traveled right after he ate. Maybe you didn't know that, and I'm telling you that now for the first time, but that's the way it was. Well, the Moors had to travel to visit family that day, over an hour away, and they thought nothing of the little vomit maker that they was tagging along in their car. Until Lucas noticed a change in his jovial sidekick and starts asking from the back, Eli, are you okay? Eli, are you okay? Oh, gross! And has this big old nasty face. At which time, Pastor Michael turns around and then has the same expression as Lucas. This incredulous face of what in the world just happened? And April, of course, kicks into full mom mode. 
They pull the car over on the side of the highway and go to work on Eli, who feels much better after expelling breakfast. We all have a series of events which we can look at in hindsight and see clearly how one thing led to the other, to the next, to the next, to the next, making it almost inevitable. And often in a moment, we're ignorant of those series of events that make things inevitable. And yet we all can point to those events in our lives. That's so often the case with suffering. I like to think of suffering of all types, kind of like a fog, a dense cloud over us that keeps us from seeing the horizon. Suffering draws our mind to our emotional pain, to our physical pain, to all sorts of challenges that we have in the moment. And it's, it's very hard to keep our eyes fixed on God as we suffer. But you see, God inspired Paul to write Romans 8 to help redirect our gaze as we suffer, to help us really learn to suffer well. You see, part of suffering well is to learn to recognize God as sovereign, to see our heavenly Father as sovereign over our suffering, purposing to use our suffering for our good and his glory. And so today, Paul helps us recognize an inevitable and unbreakable chain of events that is true of every single Christian beginning in eternity past, which is specifically designed to give us confidence that he who began a good work in you will bring it through to completion. That God not only can, but will work all things for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So as we consider this inevitable chain of events, we will learn this morning five certain ways that God works in every Christian. These are five certain ways that God works in every Christian. These are things that help us see the horizon through the fog of suffering. These are things that that help us speak truth to our emotions when we feel like everything is absolutely terrible and there's no possibility of any improvement. See, we can know with certainty how God works in our life. And so we can say with confidence, verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's the framework of this inevitable series of events that God says is true of us. Well, the starting point for God's work in our lives is, number one here, God loved you in eternity past. Number one, God loved you in eternity past. We're going to deal this morning with God's perfect plan in eternity past. We're going to look at his work of predestination. Some like to call it election, and that's another word that is used. But first, we're also going to look at God's foreknowledge, his foreknowledge. Now, I know that those words cause some people to squirm because strong concepts of God's sovereignty and salvation and foreknowledge and predestination and election, those words seem to limit our free will. 
and our responsibility even to choose and follow God. And with the best of intentions, many have attempted to explain away these words, foreknowledge, predestination, election, to keep God from seeming arbitrary or or messing with our so-called free will to choose or not choose him. But I want you to realize that the Bible teaches two truths that we have to keep in tension here. Truth number one, God is sovereign over all things, including your salvation from eternity past, as we're about to see, including your suffering and all the terrible things that have ever happened. God is sovereign. Tension number two, men are also held responsible for their actions and never have their arms twisted to follow through on their sinful desires. Our desires and our decisions are what you might say compatible with God's ultimate sovereign will. We do not have ultimate sovereign free will. God has ultimate sovereign free will. But our desires are compatible with that free will, with God's free will. So turn to Romans 6, 6. I want you to help you understand this a little bit clearer. Romans 6, verse 6. And you remember, without God doing a work in us, without God uniting us to Christ, it says in this text that we are actually slaves incapable uh, of being free, we are slaves to sin, unable to choose the good, unable to actually come to God. Our desires are really incapable of glorifying God in any sense. And so before we can know God, before we can follow Christ, God has to work in us to bring us out of a cycle of sin. And so look at Romans 6, verse 6. It says, we know that our old self was crucified with him, that is with Christ, in order that the body of sin, the thing that we are born into, this born into a body of sin, might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be what? Enslaved to sin. That means incapable of doing anything but sin. Then verse 7 says, "For for one who has died has been set free from Sin. Who is freeing us from sin? Is it us and our own decision? No, it is God who frees us from sin. So again, in order for us to be free, no longer enslaved to only choose and desire sin, God has to work in us. In a sense, God enables us to do what is otherwise impossible. Die to ourselves and turn and follow Christ. That's not something anybody does because they discovered the gospel. That's something God does in our hearts so that we can have that ability to respond. And yet, remember we're keeping two things in tension here, God still calls us with a renewed desire to fight sin in our flesh, to fight the wicked desires that continue to crop up. And so he says things like this, go to Romans 6 verse 12. He commands us, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God. You see, that is our responsibility. God wants you to make a choice to learn to desire what honors him. 
And yet, he continues and says, we are to present ourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. You didn't bring yourself from death to life. Who brought you from death to life? God did. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Whose grace? God's grace. And so you see the tension of our responsibility and God's sovereignty within a few verses. And so as we talk about God's work in our lives in eternity past, we need to remember that the Bible nowhere teaches, nowhere teaches us that man is absolutely sovereign in his free will, apart from God's sovereignty. But we are always responsible to choose to follow God. And we always make very real choices based on our very real desires from our perspective. And without Christ, our desires are enslaved to what? Sin. And even after God has worked, there is still that pull to the old self. And so we have to be reminded, put off the old self and put on the new self. We have to be reminded, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Don't present yourselves as members for unrighteousness, but pursue God. The glorious wonder of these verses tells us that God is sovereign even over our desires and even over our decisions, and yet we still have to decide and choose to follow him. There's a tension there. We have to be comfortable with tensions because that's what the Bible teaches us. Now go back to Romans 8. So as we suffer... Even sometimes because we've returned to some sinful desires like a dog going back to its vomit, God wants us to remember that his love for you is not temporary. It's not based on your ability to choose the right. But God's love for you started in eternity past and moves unbroken with absolute certainty to eternity future. And so as we understand first God's foreknowledge, that's our big word here, let's remember that this is written to encourage sufferers. When God talks about foreknowledge, he's doing so in the context of trying to encourage us that our suffering can be used for our good. So let's make sure that that's the context in our minds. This is written to keep our eyes off of our trials, on our own, off of our own inabilities to choose right, and onto God who is sovereign who is our rock and our refuge. So with that in mind, look at verse 29, Romans 8, 29. He says, for those whom he foreknew, we're going to stop right there, for those whom he foreknew, and that first link in the inevitable chain of events is God foreknowing us. Now, there are two typical ways that people interpret this word. It could mean simply knowing something ahead of time, like knowing that I would choose to wear this tie. I, I certainly believe that God knew that I would be wearing a white and blue flowered tie on Mother's Day in the year 2023. God looked down ahead and said, yeah, he's going to wear that tie, right? He simply knows what I'm going to choose far ahead of time. I didn't know I was going to wear this tie when I was writing my sermon. 
until the night before, right? That's when I knew I was going to wear the tie. When I went to my closet, I was like, oh, this is a tie, and this is what I'm going to wear. And I picked it out, right? So I didn't know that, but God knew that because he's able to look ahead and, and know the future. That is called simple foreknowledge, simply knowing what's going to happen before it happens. But that's not the way that we rightly understand this word. It could mean, and it does mean, that God intimately knew or loved ahead of time. This is by far the much more common use of foreknowledge or even knowledge of someone, God knowing us, in scriptures. It speaks of God choosing to place his love on us before there was us, without regard to anything which we could do or wouldn't do. God chose to love us. He didn't just look ahead and see that we would choose him. God chose to foreknow, for love us. Notice in this verse, it is people whom God foreknew, not choices. Look down at the verse. Look down at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew. He didn't say for the one's choices whom he foreknew. He could have said that if you wanted to speak of God thinking ahead and knowing ahead our choices. No, he says those individuals, those people whom he foreknew. He doesn't just foreknow our actions, but he foreknows a people. So therefore, you could translate this as God foreloved his people, his adopted children. He foreknew, he chose to love us. Romans 9 famously makes this point with Jacob and Esau. We're going to get there in a number of weeks here, but as we look ahead to Romans chapter 9, we see very clearly it's before either Jacob or Esau had done anything, either good or bad, it didn't matter, in order that God could have his purpose of election known. He said, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, before without any regard to what Jacob or Esau would do. God chose because he elected. He chose to do what he was going to do. That's his point in Romans chapter 9. But also, this idea of God knowing who he's going to know and loving those who he knows is how the Old Testament frequently speaks of this word know. So to help you understand this, go to Genesis chapter 18, verse 19. Genesis chapter 18, verse 19. As Yahweh appears to Abraham, we get some insight into why Abraham will be a mighty nation, why all the nations of the earth will be blessed through Abraham, what it is that makes Abraham so special. And here's the deal. It's because God foreknew him. God chose him. Look at Roman, uh, Genesis 18, verse 19. It says very clearly, for I have chosen him. And if you have a footnote in your ESV, go down to the footnote, and the Hebrew says what? Known. It's the Hebrew word to know. See, it, God is saying, I have known Abraham, and therefore I have set him apart, that he may be commanded to talk to his children and his household after him, to keep the way of Yahweh by doing righteousness and justice so that Yahweh may bring to Abraham what he has promised to him. So why is all these blessings coming on Abraham? Because God chose him. Or another way to say it is God knew him. Right? 
That's his point. God literally knew Abraham. What does it mean that he knew Abraham? Did he knew who Abraham was? No, it means he chose to put his love onto Abraham. Before Abraham had done anything, God chose to know Abraham. And God chose him to bring about his promises. It's not just in Genesis. Psalm 1-6, listen to this. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This can't mean that he doesn't know what the wicked are doing, does it? So when it says he knows the ways of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish, he's not saying that he has no idea what the wicked are doing. This is just to get at the rich understanding of no. It means to love. The Lord loves and knows, foreknows the way of the righteous. He loves them as a family member, but the way of the wicked, they're going to perish. Hosea 13, 5, God says to Israel, I knew you in the wilderness and in the land of drought. I mean, this is literally hundreds of years after God had called Abraham and knew the people of Israel. It's not saying that he just knew them then and didn't know them before. It's saying that he took care of them. To say that he knew them while they were in the wilderness is to say that he loved them, he cared for them, he helped them. God certainly knew Israel. It's just saying that he loved them. And then, of course, there's the famous Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore a son. There's an intimate love that's wrapped up in the word know. Now, turn to Matthew chapter 7, verse 23. I want you to see this in the New Testament, too, on the, words of, on the lips of Jesus. Matthew 7, verse 23. This is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus used the word no in the same way when on the day of judgment, people are going to come to Jesus and they're going to say, Lord, Lord, did I not do these miracles in your name? Did I not try to serve you? Did I not try to work in your name? Did I not choose to identify as a Christian? And what does Jesus say when those who come to him say, did I not know you? Did I not choose to follow you? What does he say? Verse 23. And then will I declare to them, I never what? Knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He knows who they are, of course. He just does not know and love them as family, as his sons and daughters. They are not those adopted into his family. It's one of the most terrifying passages in the Bible, is it not? So very often the opposite of God knowing his people is not that he's ignorant of some and knows others. It isn't knowing that they would choose him ahead of time. No, the opposite of knowing his people is rejection. So go back to Romans 8. Move ahead a chapter, a couple of chapters, Romans 11, verse 2. Speaking of Israel, we see this. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Whom he chose, whom he chose to love as his family. So to know is to love as family. And to foreknow is to forelove from eternity past. John Murray, a commentator, writes this. Know in scriptures is practically synonymous with to love. 
So whom he foreknew is virtually equivalent to whom he foreloved. Foreknowledge is sovereign, distinguishing love. Foreknowledge isn't God looking ahead to see what we're going to do. It's God choosing to love us, his children. Remember, this is supposed to be comforting in the midst of suffering, to know that we have a big God, a sovereign God who is in control even over evil, who knew us as family long before we are alive, who loved us so much he plans and works all things for our good, Romans 8.28 says. The comfort comes knowing that the chain of events started with God and ends with God. Comfort does not come that God looked ahead and saw that we would do something. That's not the point of the text. Comfort comes when we realize God started it all and foreknew and foreloved us in eternity past without regard to anything that we've done. You see, when your toddler is exhausted and confused, having the whole body heaves as she's crying and can't get control of herself, she doesn't need to know that she's made some really good choices sometimes in her life. She needs to know that her mommy and her daddy are there, that she can bury her head in their shoulders and melt into their arms and trust in their loving care, that mom and dad know what to do. And so it is with God and us. The comfort doesn't come, oh, you guys have made some really good choices. I knew it ahead of time. No, the comfort comes because God is sovereign and chose you. He foreknew, foreloved you. As you suffer, take comfort knowing that God loved you from eternity past. Well, the second link in God's chain here, number two, God shows you in eternity past to be like Jesus. Link number two, God shows you in eternity past to be like Jesus. Now, there is a distinction here that Paul makes, two different words that are used to describe how God works to save Christians before time. God not only lovingly knew his children, he also chose or predestined us to be in Christ. Uh, Christian author and theologian Sam Storms writes, predestination points to the decision that God made concerning what he intended to do with those whom he foreknew. Predestination is the act in eternity past in which God ordained or decreed that those in whom he set his saving love or foreknew would indeed inherit eternal life. All right, let me simplify that real quick for you. To foreknow is God choosing to place affections on whomever he wants. To foreknow is to foreaffect, to forelove. To predestine is God planning how we come to know his saving love. That makes sense? Choosing to love, choosing to figure out how it is that these things will come to pass in our life. That's predestination. So let's look at verse 29 again. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. You see, this is God's goal for your life, to make us like Christ. You know what it says, all things work together for good? This is what it's talking about. 
to be conformed to the image of God. We're so much confusion of Romans 8.28, right? We like Romans 8.28, but we often think of it in a wrong way. We often like to think of Romans 8.28 that says that God's gonna work all things for our good, as in God's gonna give me exactly what I want. He's gonna make me healthy again. He's going to make me rich. He's going to give me the best job. He's going to work this uh, uh, terrible sickness into a situation where I'm going to be recovered and give him the glory. It's all going to be great. Now, does he do those things? Yes, but he does not say that that's always what he's going to do. The good that he talks about, that he's going to work in your life, all things working for your good, is this. Verse 29, that we would be conformed to the image of his Son. See, God does not just react to bad things that happen in our lives and use them occasionally for our good. God is not constantly playing catch up in our life to, to make lemonade out of life's lemons. He predestined the lemons, the means, and the ends of being, becoming Christ-like. So that word predestined in verse 29 is that God predetermined all the ways that his love will be made known in our life, our salvation, our growth, our trials, everything. And there are only four other places that this word predestined is used in the New Testament. We're going to look at a couple of them because I think it's very helpful to clarify in our minds what predestined means. So the first one, go to Acts 4, 27 and 28. Acts 4, 27 and 28. At this point in the book of Acts, the Jews had just arrested Peter and John, but then released them warning them to never speak in the name of Jesus again, to never say that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Holy One of God ever again. They've released them and said, you can go, but don't ever talk about Jesus. And so at the end of Acts chapter 4, the Christians come together with Peter and John, and, and they're, they're praying. They're, they're asking God for boldness, and they quote scripture that prophesied that kings and queens and rulers would gather against God's anointed one and gather against those who followed Christ. And then they say this incredible prayer, Acts 4, verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had what? Predestined to take place. And so even though Herod and Pilate certainly choose to crucify Christ within the desires of their own hearts, they were doing whatever God, what? Predestined to happen. That's so clear, verse 28, right? They are doing whatever your God hand and your God's plan had predestined to take place. Predestined, again, is God's sovereign plan and purpose to do whatever he wants, and so those Christians were conform, comforted at that point by seeing a big God, a sovereign God who made absolutely everything. That's how they begin their prayer. Look at verse 24. 
They come and they lift up their voices together to God and they say, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Their whole starting point for comfort in this trial is God is big, God is sovereign. I can't control this, but you, God, can. And what's the encouragement that they get? (laughs) That you do whatever your predestined hand chooses to take place. Verse 29, and now, Lord, Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Help us to be bold, trusting that you are more sovereign than any earthly king. That you have predestined all these things to take place. And what's the worst that they can do to me? Kill me? And then I'm going to be better off because I'll be with the Lord. Second place, or another place that these uh, concept of predestination and the word predestination is found, go to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, we see two more uses of the word predestined. Flip over there, Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians 1, we see very clearly also what we saw in Romans 8, that God predestined us in Jesus or in Christ. In fact, R.C. Sproul noted, when the New Testament speaks of predestination, the focus is always and everywhere related to Christ. Predestination is never discussed in the abstract. It is always related to Christians' relationships with Jesus, such is the case in Ephesians 1. So look at the intersection between in Christ language, in Jesus language, and God choosing and predestination language. They go right hand in hand in chapter 1, Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, where? In Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is something that is ours, are the overflowing of God's heart. He unites us in Christ. Verse 4 continues, even as God, he chose us in Christ before when? The foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. You see that predestination, that choosing language, it's all connected to choosing us to be in Christ. So he says, he predestined us, verse 5, for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, not ours, to the praise of his glorious grace with which God has blessed us in the beloved. There's no wiggle room in these verses to think that foreknowledge and predestination are a way to describe God looking ahead to what we will freely choose. He says, in eternity past, God chose. In eternity past, God predestined. God foreloved us according to the purpose of, what does it say? According to the purpose of his will. And what does God predestine for us? To be adopted into his family, verse 5 says. Similarly, Paul writes Ephesians 1, 11. 
in him, that is in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. That's that family language. That's that uh, adopted language. We've obtained, we've been given this inheritance, having been predestined. That's that predestined language again. According to the purpose of God, who works all things according to the counsel of God's will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ, that's the in Christ language again, might be to the praise of his glory. See, Christians always are to believe in a big, sovereign God, not in our big, sovereign free will. God is not some gentleman who gives us free will and is constantly nimble trying to figure out what to do with our messes. That's not how the Bible describes our life. He doesn't look ahead and see all of our sin after giving us free will and and knit together some plan B or C or D or E or double Z, whatever, to make things work out. Now, some of us have a hard time believing in election and predestination. And my guess is it's probably not because you doubt the sovereignty of God. It's probably because you really don't understand the depravity of man. Really the linchpin of predestination, of God having to choose us, to forelove us, to work and choose how he's going to work in our lives is the fact that there is absolutely no way that we can be like Jesus apart from God starting the work in us. Romans says that we are born in sin, inheriting a sin nature, and that we all sin in thought, word, and deed, and being. And then you're in Ephesians. Look at Ephesians 2, verse 1. He says it like this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, is this talking about just the worst of the worst here? He continues, No, you're just following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Who are these sons of disobedience? Is it, is it just those, those really bad people out there? Just the sons of anarchy, some like biker gang. No, no, this is not talking about just the worst. What does he say? Verse three, among whom we what? All once walked. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And if we are dead, unable to do enough good to please God, if we are slaves to sin, as Romans 6 says, unable to choose God, then we desperately need God to open our blind eyes, to revive our dead hearts, and to help us see, first, the sinfulness of our own sin, and second, the glories of what Christ has done. We need God to help us understand that Jesus Christ is the only way that we can be right with him. That God had to send his son to live a perfect life in the flesh as a, as a true human so that he could then be a sacrifice for the sins of the world. As he hung on the cross, God poured out the wrath for our sins on his son. And then God also 
as he says in Acts, predestined the Son to rise from the dead so that Jesus and Jesus alone could be that perfect substitute for our sin and so that we could be declared righteous and have access to God. So in Christ alone, we can be redeemed. Ephesians 1, 7 is so clear. In Christ, in him, we have redemption. That is, we have been bought with this price through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses, it's according to the riches of God's grace. And Christ's work for you specifically was part of God's perfect plan to make you a part of his family. Ephesians 1.5, right? He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And if you get the glories of Christ's work and you want to turn from sin, to follow God, praise be to God for his work in your life. Praise be to God for work that began before time. Praise be to God for predestination. People always ask me, well, how do I know if I've been predestined? How do I know if God foreknew me? You know God foreknew you because you want to follow him, because the gospel message seems sweet to you. You see no other way that you can have eternal life. You see no other hope in this life but through Christ alone. If you see that, if you've turned and trusted in Christ, then God has predestined you. God has foreknown you. God has foreloved you. He chose you from eternity past to be like Jesus. And so we respond in faith, but we recognize that God is the one who predestined all of this to happen, to work in us. I mean, just listen as I read the beginning of the Gospel of John, John 1, 11. Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, man's responsibility to believe in his name, right? He gave the right to become children of God. That's glorious news. Our responsibility is to believe. But if we do, John says, this is according to God's purpose. Verse 13, the very next verse. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God and his will. How is it that we come to know God? God foreknew you. God predestined you. Such a weighty, glorious truth. Go back to Romans 8. So we are comforted knowing that God's work, his chain of events in our lives started in eternity past. So he says, Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, that is God the son, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. So we are comforted knowing that God's work, his chain of events in our lives started in eternity past. But we also see what is for our good, being made like Christ, is also for God's glory. The purpose of predestination, he says, in order that, the end of the verse there, Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. To say that Jesus is the firstborn means the preeminent one. 
in God's eternal family, which we are all adopted into if we're children of God. And so God predestines us to be the family of God for the glory of Christ. That's the reason Christians often call each other's brothers and sisters. It's because we're one family in Christ. So if you are a Christian, you are foreknown with a covenant family-like love. You are predestined, chosen by God, who predetermined the means of bringing you into his family. And so the third link in the inseparable chain, the third certain way that God works in every Christian is number three here, God effectually called you at the right time. God effectually called you at the right time. Now, every parent has experienced that moment when a child comes home excited about something new that they learned, and they tell you, and as they tell you, you have to resist really hard from rolling your eyes, because the thing that they're telling you they just learned is the very thing that you've told them about 250 times, and you wonder why they didn't get all those times that you said it. Because it wasn't the right time. That's how God works in our lives too. At exactly the right time, God brings to pass what he eternally decreed long ago. In every Christian's life, at a moment, he gives us eyes to see the truth of the gospel. That is what is called the effectual call. The effectual call of God always works through the call of the gospel message that is preached. And so there's two senses of the word call in scriptures. There's the gospel call that is given to the whole world that we are to call every nation and every people to come to know Jesus. This gospel call is out to everybody. But there's also an effectual call and that call is something that God alone does. Matthew twenty two fourteen speaks of the general gospel call that goes to all people. He says, for many are called, but few are chosen. Though uh, this might describe what's happening now. In a room this size with this many people, some of you hear these things and your heart longs for Christ even more. You're comforted by God's sovereignty over your life. And some of you, don't really care. You don't really want Christ. Just looking forward to what's going to happen next today in Mother's Day. The same gospel preached, 2 Corinthians 2 tells us, smells like life to some and the stink of death to others. What's the difference? God doing a work effectually in our hearts. So what makes it smell like life? God's effectual call. Look at verse 30, Romans 8, 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. If God chooses you before the foundation of the world, if God predestined you to become like Christ at the right time, God will effectually call you to the, through the preaching of the gospel message. There's certainty. This is a promise from God to sufferers, Right? He foreknew those who are his children. He predestined those who are his children, and he calls effectually those who are his children to be saved. Paul describes the power of this effectual call very clearly in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 5. Just listen as I read. 1 Thessalonians 1, 5 says, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction... 
This is how they know that they're Christians. Because the gospel comes not just as kind of an interesting message, but because God did a work in their hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. God's effectual call always produces obvious outward change and an inward heart change. Therefore, we must be simply faithful to share the gospel to everyone and then trust that God will effectually call those he has chosen before the foundation of the world. Christian, this means that as we think about evangelism, we are responsible for following God's commands to share. God is responsible for changing hearts. Manipulating a response from your child or an adult, just forcing down the fear of hell and making them pray some prayer, that is not good evangelism. We simply have to present the glories of the gospel and ask them if they believe this and trust this and want this. And then sure, we help them respond. But we need to point out the weight of this gospel message, not just aim for a response. And for those of us who belong to Christ, who've been adopted into his family, we look back at our lives and with great joy and utter humility, we thank God. We thank God for calling us to repentance and faith and giving us a new heart to respond, for liberating us from life and sin and death, and for declaring us to be righteous before God. And so the fourth certain way that God works in every Christian, number four, God justified you despite your sin. Number four, God justified you despite your sin. Paul continues his crescendo, throwing out these rich words as if their mere mention is to comfort the Christian, even without really much explanation here. And the next word should be quite familiar if you've been studying and reading Romans. The next word that is part and parcel of every Christian's life is that we are justified. He continues, verse 30. He says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. To to remember the the weight of this, go to Romans 3, verse 22 again. Remember, justification means our declared righteousness before God. It doesn't mean that we are actually perfect. But at the moment, the effectual calling of God takes root in our heart. The moment we hear the gospel of reconciliation with God through Christ alone, and we turn and trust in Christ alone to cover our sins, and and God brings us to himself, at the moment that we are saved, we are also justified. That means we are right before God. We are declared righteous before God. God looks down and sees, as it were, Christ's blood. And so if those lights are God looking down on us, and we're here, God sees not us, but he sees Christ's righteousness. He sees Christ's blood instead of our sin. That's what it means to be justified. It means to be declared righteous before God. For God is righteous and he is fair, causing every sin we've ever committed to be counted on Christ in our place. And so we see Romans 3, 22, the end of 22, he says, for there's no distinction for all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified there when we are made right by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation that is a payment by his blood to be received by faith. 
This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness, his fairness at the present time so that he might be just or fair and the justifier making us righteous of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So in spite of our sin, in spite of the universality of sin, God for loved some and he predestined us to be one with Christ, to be united with him in a death like his, so that God could be righteous and fair and credit our sin on his son, so that every sin could be paid for. That's what it means that God is righteous by calling us righteous. We're not righteous. We've been covered by Christ's righteousness. Declared righteous, access to God. And all this happens despite your sin. Now, I didn't know this, but serious hunters have to figure out how to mask their scent. I'm not a serious hunter. And they have to do that to keep animals from smelling you. I read an article that said, that suggested really that, that special soaps and clothes can actually help cure smelly bacteria. Maybe we all should kind of get on some of that. They also suggested you can rub dirt and pine needles all over your body and that will somehow mask your scent. Who knew, right? There's even a product called Overload that smells so bad it confuses animal smell and hopefully they just ignore smells altogether because everything is just so overloaded. Interesting. But it also said, try as you might, you can't get rid of your smell. I thought, great. We're all lost, right? You see, that's the way a lot of people think of getting right with God. They try to mask the scent of sin. Ah, you know what? I really need to do a little bit better in life. I really just need to go to church a little bit more. I need to look for some affirmation from my friends, from others who congratulate you for being true to yourself and live your own truth. You know, as long as people tell me I'm good, I must be good. Others look at the overload smell of sin from others and compare yourself and you think, I don't smell like that guy. I must be pretty good. But to be justified before God, you can't do anything. God has to justify you in Christ alone. It's the only way he can be righteous and fair. By punishing Christ in our place and then crediting, crediting us with Christ's righteousness. And how do we know if God has worked in us? God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood because he's been received by faith. That's our responsibility because God effectually works in our hearts to be able to allow us to receive him by faith. Go to Romans 8, 29 and 30. Notice that God is the subject of each of these actions he is the one who foreknew. He is the one who predestined. He is the one who called. He is the one who justified. And those whom he, at the end of the verse there, justified, he also glorified. You notice how each of these form an inseparable chain? It's not like at some point you are right with God, and then at some point later you aren't right with God. You either are justified, covered by Christ's blood, or you're not. If you're justified, then you've been foreknown and you've been predestined. If you've been called by God and you've had that effectual calling in your life, then you've been justified and you will be glorified. That's how the inseparable links of chain work. 
And so point five here, God will glorify you when you die. The fifth certain way that God works in every Christian is that God will glorify when you die. To be given a glorified body is the final culminating gift of salvation. It's that moment when we are finally and forever made right with Christ, when we are given a new body to, to live with God forever, when we get to experience God's perfect new creation, for, for that is heaven, our, our eternal state. And just as sure as God's work in effectually calling his own is justifying us, God says he too will glorify every single Christian. So he says, those whom you predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Have you noticed that Paul speaks of our glorification in the past tense? Who's glorified here? Who has a glorified body no longer sins? Nobody, right? Why is he speaking in this past tense? It's because God works our salvation, our future, it's just as sure and just as certain as the past. God's past work in eternity past to foreknow us, to predestine us, is just as finished as his future work to glorify us. For he is eternal, fully sovereign, and the great king. Nothing can happen outside of his perfect plan. And so if you've turned to trust in Christ, if you believe in what Christ has done, it will affect your life as you grow like Christ. And even as you suffer, you ask, what can man do to me? Nothing that God doesn't plan to work out for our good. I hope you can see this unbreakable chain, the certainty in God's work. Romans 8, 29 and 30. For the Christian, this is exactly what we need to remember as we suffer. How many does God lose along the path of life? None. How many true children of God abandon him and never return? None. If they do, they, know where, they were never of him. As you have hurt a hard time keeping your eyes off your pain, the next big event in life, what is the constant for the Christian? God works all things out for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And Romans 8.28 is only comforting when we remember that God is a big Sovereign God, always able to finish what he starts. So we confidently walk with Christ. We boldly share the gospel, trusting God to work in our lives. We fight remaining sin, expecting to see victory in our life. We do not give over to a, ourselves over to anxiety, but eagerly wait to see how God will meet us in our times of weakness. We pray to God and trust the Holy Spirit will help us at every moment. Why? Because we serve a big, sovereign God. So go out, be comforted, and live for him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time of study in your word. Lord, thank you for the glorious truth of your sovereignty in our lives and in our salvation in particular. Thank you for choosing us before the foundation of the world. Thank you for predestining us. Thank you for, for loving us, for knowing us, so that we can be conformed to the image of Jesus. Lord, help us to grow ever closer to you as we are comforted by your sovereignty. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.